Hi, this is Christoph Augenstein speaking. I'm a partner at Carter Augenstein, a specialized IP litigation boutique law firm in Düsseldorf, Germany. You're listening to IP Fridays. Hello and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert. We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. Welcome to episode 80 of IP Fridays. Yes, you heard it right. It's episode 80. We are already amazed that we already delivered 80 episodes to you in the last three years. If you want to show us your gratitude, please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes, Stitcher or Google Play. And of course, spread the word about our podcast with your colleagues and friends and anyone you might think would be interested in our podcast. We currently have about 6,000 monthly downloads of our podcast, so I guess it's fair to say that we are the most downloaded intellectual property-related podcasts currently available. Today's interview guest is Jason Karloff of Barnes & Thornburg. He is the Entertainment, Media and Sports Practice Group Chair at Barnes & Thornburg and is located in Los Angeles. His clients included and include Bob Dylan, Stevie Wonder, DreamWorks, Lionsgate, Merrill Lynch, The Olympics and many other clients. Before we jump into the interview, I want to share some news from the intellectual property world with you. And the first news item is that the UK is to join the Hague Agreement in 2018. So they made it pretty clear that they are brexiting, so exiting the EU. And to do that, they need to become member of a couple of important treaties. And this seems to be the first step in many that they now joined the Hague Agreement. So applicants um, will be able to file um, the Hague industrial designs uh, by the Hague Agreement starting from April 6th. So they will, uh, uh, they will join the agreement. It will become active on 31st of March 2018 and... Uh, applicants will be able to file applications designating the UK starting from April 6th, 2018. Another interesting thing is that the EU IPO, so the EU Intellectual Property Office, announced on May 22nd, so not too long ago, namely yesterday and as of this recording, that they now allow visual search for trademarks, not only EU trademarks, but also French trademarks and UK trademarks. So you can upload an image and then you can search for similar looking figurative trademarks. Go ahead and try it and let us know in the comments below this episode whether you like the feature or not, whether it worked for you or not. And there are more important news from the EU IPO. The EU IPO just opened a new open data platform to access the EU IPO's register. With this new service, you will be able to retrieve data about trademarks, representatives, international registrations, designs and applicants to combat fraudsters personal information about the applicants are not available. 
So let's jump into the interview with Jason Karloff. Ralph, I am visiting the Los Angeles office of Barnes and Thornburg today and have the pleasure of meeting with Jason Karloff, who is the Entertainment, Media and Sports Practice Group Chair at Barnes and Thornburg. Jason represents a variety of clients in the music, entertainment, live events, advertising and technology industries. His clients include individuals such as Bob Dylan, John Fogarty and T-Bone Burnett as well as institutions that work and invest in entertainment and technology, including such well-known brands as DreamWorks, The Olympics, Samsung, and Yahoo. The work that Jason handles for his clients requires his knowledge of and participation in virtually all aspects of the music, television, film, live events, advertising, licensing, and technology industries. Jason received his BA cum laude with distinction in English, and American Literature from Brandeis University in 1991. He received both his MA in Communications Management, Annenberg School for Communication, and his JD from the University of Southern California in 1995. Jason is consistently recognized as a top entertainment attorney in Variety Magazine's Legal Impact Report. Welcome, Jason, to IP Fridays. Good to be here, Ken. So, Jason, um, can you tell our listeners a little, little bit about what you do on a day-to-day -day basis? Uh, sure. I, uh, I work in all facets of music and how that relates to uh, all different forms of media. Mm -hmm. And that can be in the context of composers. That can be in the context of recording artists, the music managers, producers, as well as entities such as ad companies, traditional corporations, uh, and anybody that really uses content uh, and audio material and audiovisual material. And what I will often do is... Uh, uh, do everything from advise them with respect to their rights based upon a current fact pattern to strategize and discuss ways in which to protect their intellectual property uh, and then uh, grow it and exploit it in a safe and most lucrative way. So, Jason, um, let's move into a discussion of um, licenses uh, in the music industry. What what types of licenses exist? In well, that's a broad question. Uh, there are all different types of licenses. And uh, in music, it's important to note that there are two distinct copyrights mm -hmm. as it relates to music. There is the song, the composition, some people call it, uh, which is distilled to the lyric and the melody. That's what composes the copyright in into a song. Okay. There's some case law out there that people may know about that's euphemistically called the White Lines case, uh, where uh, soon uh, we will know and determine on appeal whether or not that part of the law has changed, okay. which would be significant. Uh, but the protection and the licensing of both the song and the recorded copyright will remain the same. The only flux in the law may be what constitutes the copyright in and to the song. Uh, it may be more than just melody and lyric. It may uh, be the overall feeling and tempo that then becomes part of the copyright. Personally, I doubt that's where the law will go, but right now uh, that's uh, uh, racing through the courts uh, relates to the song White Live and Gay Estate. Mm -hmm. uh, but having said that, uh, when you use music, there are at least two distinct licenses to be aware of, the song and the record. And those are mostly historically often controlled or owned by separate licensors or parties. And as a result, you're often at least getting two licenses for a particular use. That will presuppose that there's no co-ownership 
and that you would not be obtaining more license. And for instance, in the modern era, and especially in the hip-hop genre, uh, co-writing and collective writing uh, often occurs and is very popular. And when that occurs, as it relates to the song especially, you often have a situation where you have to have multiple licensors. So it's possible, as an example, and for instance, for one television commercial use, for one song and one recording of that song, you could conceivably have uh, six, seven, eight, nine, ten different licenses. Uh, and so it can become a little bit complicated, and you have to get all those people to agree often, mm -hmm. and you have to have done your homework and research to make sure that there are no other licensors, because each one of those licensors will only represent and warrant that they have the right to make the license with respect to their particular share. Yes. Uh, unlike other forms of licensing, uh, the protocol and the standard is not in the underlying document to have it be joint and several. Uh, so you have the, the two different types of copyright. And then you have different types of licenses with respect to those copyrights. Yes. Uh, those can take the form of, and most traditionally, just some audio playback methodology, what we generically call a record. In the modern era is streaming, which really used to be most popularized by downloads and tethered downloads. Uh, which What's a tethered download? A tethered download is a download which comes with a whole bunch of rights that expire. So you have it as a copy and you save it as a copy, but it will ultimately expire, i.e. it's tethered. Oh. So... Uh, 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 but then, of course, in days of yore, uh, uh, we had everything from cassettes to eight tracks sure. uh, to vinyl uh, and all the way back to reel to reel tape. And so but all of those are what under the act you would call a record and the Copyright Act is. And the record uh, requires its own license. And so, too, does the song. And if you're making a record, you have to, for instance, obtain the right to make the record and obtain the right to have the record embody the particular song that is on the record. Those would be two separate licenses. It would be called a master use license on the record side and a mechanical license on the song side. Yes. But for instance, in all different forms of media, there are other uses and other licenses. And those include something known as a synchronization license. When you synchronize the underlying song to a visual, when you synchronize the recording to a visual, that's still called a master use license. Then there is the right to be able to perform or play back a song in the public, known as a public performance license. Those rights are generally con controlled by entities called performance rights organizations or what you hear called PROs. Mm -hmm. And the PROs that are uh, the most renowned are called BMI and ASCAP. You may have heard of that. Oh, yes. Uh, and then there are some smaller ones known as CSAC, a new one called GMR, a company called Cobalt has gotten into the business, and that business seems to be growing. What's fueling uh, that growth? Uh, what's fueling the growth uh, is probably uh, it's a more robust business than it ever uh, was able to obtain, especially in the face of the booming recording business. But now that the recording business has taken a huge hit from everything because of technology to stealing, uh, uh, the people who own copyrights and the licensors, in order to continue to make similar le levels of money, have to find new avenues to pursue. And in particular, one of those avenues for songs, there are recorded public performances, but that's probably outside the scope of this conversation, it isn't as pronounced, although it is growing and gaining huge steam. Um, the, uh, the people who used to reap the benefits, for instance, on all the songs and the publishing of that, uh, are having to find new avenues. Yeah. And as a result, 
they will crank down on infringers of public performance rights in the modern era in order to extract monies, whereas in the past, they didn't pay it the same type of deference and time of day. So it's becoming more on the radar there, right? It was probably always on the radar. The law of diminishing returns suggested that they would make more money focusing on record sales Mm -hmm. than they would trying to uh, isolate infringers and trying to extract money out of them. But Mm -hmm. because the records no longer have the same viability, uh, they've had to focus their efforts uh, uh, capitalistically in different avenues, and this is just one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would say that's what's what's fueling it. Uh, uh, but uh, there are other forms of license. To be able to use uh, a copyright on the stage is something known as a grand right. Mm-hmm. It helps tell a story. There's an epic quality to it, such as, shall we say, chorus line or something like that, yes. where the words of the music or the song actually help tell the story of the play or the musical. Uh, and then there are some other forms of uh, licenses as well, uh, probably outside the scope uh, of what we're discussing here. Uh, but as long as you focus on the different types of licenses and are aware of it, generally, especially if you're not familiar with these issues as they come about, you will be able to identify them. And of course, you certainly could call your local music lawyer. Sure. Um on blanket licenses, um, what, what types of businesses are using blanket licenses? I know people talk about blanket licenses all the time. Sure. What's well, that's, the trend there? Yeah, that's um, a blanket license is in the context of the types of license we've already discussed, but it has a, uh, a blanket approach, shall we say. Mm-hmm. And uh, what that generally means is that the licensor has provided a license to the licensee for more than just one or a few copyrights, yes. but so to speak, on a blanket basis so that uh, the licensee can in fact use all the copyrights that are pursuant to the blanket license, quite often all the copyrights that are in what you'll hear people refer to as the catalog, yes. the catalog of copyrights that a particular licensor owns. And the reason for that is really... Uh, an efficiency and a convenience issue. In the modern era, uh, although music is not as expensive, easily obtained, and therefore the receivables are less, the utilitarian aspect of music is far greater. You can walk around with something that sounds great. You can play and integrate things in everything you're doing, whether that's your computer, your telephone, in your elevator. Sure. Uh, in a hospital while music plays, uh, in background some music. office, background music, film, yeah. television, what have you. And how licensees choose, or in particular know ahead of time what music their creative people will use in the context of their business or their services is just not predictable. But the pace at which that business occurs and then the music needs to be integrated in a particular business or service is much faster than a one-by-one licensing process will allow. Hence, a blanket license. There, there, there fills the need. Yes, yeah. it's the need to be able to do that. Now, uh, uh, these are often a lot more intricate and a lot more difficult yeah. because, uh, especially in the context of a large catalog of thousands or tens of thousands, if not millions of copyright, uh, each one of the owners or those who control it may, for instance, have a different opinion as to what the value is of their particular copyright, how they want that copyright used, how they don't want that copyright. And any of the terms that otherwise 
would only have to be negotiated essentially once on a single license for a single copyright, now all of a sudden take on a context which is much broader. Yes. And as a result, these licenses can be uh, arduous for both sides to accomplish, finalize, and execute. Uh, they can also sometimes be very expensive. And uh, there are a lot of pundits and great articles out there, uh, certainly one that I know of uh, over the years in Billboard magazine, the premier music trade magazine, uh, where there was a front page article which discussed how the average blanket license with a major licensor takes, now remember, this is the average, yes. 18 months from the time of initiation. Wow. So when you think about companies like Spotify, mm -hmm. Apple, any number of huge entities that have blanket licenses that use music over and over again, you can now understand why it's so difficult for them to accomplish, why there's so much infighting, why it takes so long to get to market, why it is financing these things becomes difficult. You have a chicken and egg problem. You have a great idea, but you don't have the music rights. Or you have the music rights, but you have a bad idea. Yeah, there's a lot of pieces there. There are a lot of pieces there. And, you know, Wall Street has become uh, pretty interested in, again, as of late, as the music business seems to rebound with better numbers as a result of streaming. Um, although 15, maybe 16 years ago, Wall Street was all over it. They were hot and heavy for it, and music business was going to be the panacea of new technology. Well, that crashed and burned because the music licensors really were unwilling to play ball in a way in which allowed enough people to make the right amount of margins and make the right deals in order to carry on their new underlying businesses and services. So Wall Street shied away from it, maybe, oh, the last eight to 10 years again. But it's somewhat on the rebound at the moment. And the key for people handling fundraising of new deals and new businesses is to make sure that you convey that you have an understanding of what the situation is, the pros and cons of your service, uh, the likelihood for success, and a particular cost structure so that when you sit down with a potential investment uh, opportunity, you can walk the walk, talk the talk, and in fact, it shows that you know what you're doing. That's essentially what investors want to see in the modern era. They used to want to see actual licenses, not so much at the moment. We're getting a little bit of a reprieve uh, uh, by Wall Street and investment, uh, but I suspect that will become tougher again one day soon. Yeah. Jason, we're nearing the end of our interview. What would you advise to a, to a company that was looking to use music uh, in its business or service? Are there some things that come to mind that you would impart to them? Absolutely. Uh, the number one problem that I see is that even if music is an integral part of a business or a service, and this is happening everywhere in the modern era, it's not just the music business. And what you will see is in order for uh, the music business to expand, it will have to get into businesses that are not its core business, which are other industries. And because technology allows the utilitarian aspect of music to grow, this is not that difficult. Mm -hmm. And you see companies like Peloton, that use hardware and, it, and to integrate music and music playing in workouts. You see companies like Beachbody, who really owns the aftermarket uh, workout uh, uh, or self-help workout type business, where they play tons of music on hundreds, if not thousands, of all different types of workouts for fitness purposes. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the context of the computer business, in the context of the phone business, in the context of real estate and construction, where music is integrated and piped into everything that we do, 
the number one thing that I see that is a problem that I would advise, and that if anybody leaves this talk with anything, it's budget and investigate the music cost and the margin and the overhead to your business or service before you do anything else. It is unpredictable. There is no statute or law which says this is what will occur. It's capitalism at its finest, and a licensor can require or demand anything. And once you create infringement without a license, you've put yourself behind the eight ball, and you don't have leverage anymore to negotiate better terms. At which point, and there are articles on this as well, including mm -hmm. in Forbes, Vanity Fair, and Billboard, where music licensors can in a heartbeat put a new company out of business. They will simply sue you on federal copyright infringement, and in most situations, if you knew better, you will have statutory damages and or common law damages, which will be insurmountable and cause you to have to go bankrupt. And it's classic. For whatever reason, music becomes an afterthought. And quite often, many of these game plans, many of these uh, uh, business structure, if they simply investigated the cost and budgeted for music ahead of time, including getting a good music lawyer, frankly, uh, and worked with the right people in order to do that, their business would not only still be going, but it would be a success. Yes. And so, you know, the one thing I can say is if you, you know, try to take note, if music is somewhat how in your business plan, no matter how minor and, and no matter what you think it will cost, get ahead of the game, get a good lawyer, investigate it, get an opinion, get a budget and integrate that into your plan. Or quite often you will be really sorry. And you can, you know, ahead of time determine what those costs are and uh, what could put you out of business or otherwise be a nightmare uh, may not be a walk in the park, uh, but it certainly becomes uh, uh, a doable uh, and cost-effective endeavor. Jason, this has been thoroughly fascinating. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your, your busy schedule here today to join us on IP Fridays. We'll have to do a follow-up interview. There's so much to talk about. We look forward to it. Thanks for coming by. Thanks, Jason. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com slash love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at ipfridays.com or on iTunes or Stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com slash feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to ipfridays.com slash iTunes, and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. 
Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.